0: Let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that even already this morning, our, our hearts have been brought low before you, but, but not in a way that, that leaves us hopeless and despairing, but in a way that fills us with all encouragement and joy and sure hope. We bow ourselves before you, in the confidence that you are our rock and our refuge. You are the God in whom we trust. We never know what a day will bring. We never know what this life will hand to us. We know that it will bring difficulty and hardship, but we know that you are the God of deliverance. You are the God who has affirmed your intent and your power to restore this creation and to make it attain to the destiny for which you brought it forth. We see the proof of that in the power of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He is the first fruits of the renewal that you have intended. And, Father, so we look to him, knowing whom we have believed, And being persuaded that you are able to keep what we've entrusted to you. We've entrusted all that we are, all that we have to you. And you have made us sharers in Christ our Lord. And that is the sure hope, not only of what is to come, but of our security and our well being in this life as well. We may be filled with sorrow and suffering, but we are always rejoicing we may find difficulty and want, and yet we have all sufficiency in Christ our Lord. So Father, whether well-fed, whether hungry, whether rested or without sleep, whether in difficulty or ease, in all things, Father, I pray that we have hearts that are settled before you, that the bowing of our hearts is the complacency of, of true trust, and humble dependence, knowing that our God is able and that the one who has begun this good work by the resurrection of Christ from the dead and has begun this good work in us will complete that work in the day of Christ Jesus. So, Father, I pray as we consider these uh, final uh, days of David, this final episode that the scripture uh, puts in focus of in uh, concerning his life. I pray that we will be instructed by it, that we will be encouraged to find our own lives, our own experience, our own challenges, our failures, our discouragement, but our never-ending hope and trust in you. That we will find those things as we consider this circumstance with David. So, minister to us. Father, each of us has a unique life, each of us has unique challenges, each of us has unique experiences. But I pray that you would meet, meet each one of us in a way that will encourage and edify us in the shared life that we have in Christ our Lord. Lead us by your spirit, build us up in this most holy faith. We do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've considered David's life, we saw how he's kind of a study in contrast. Uh, David was taken from the sheepfold as a young, uh, probably a teenage boy, taken from a place of insignificance, the youngest of uh, seven brothers, right? And he was taken to become the king of Israel. And he has this glorious triumph where he is distinguished as uh, the the lone man that will go out against Goliath. Even Saul was unwilling to fight him, and he goes out, and David becomes the uh, the the object of song in Israel. Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands, and David is celebrated. But then very soon he's on the run, and he's hiding, and he's being persecuted and pursued, and unjustly treated. Uh, even after being anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel, he is still living this very hard, uh, deprived life, running from Saul and, and from the threat of death. Eventually then he takes the throne of Israel and he brings the kingdom of Israel to its Abrahamic high point, right? Establishing the bounds of the kingdom and the glory of the kingdom. And he, uh, in the apex of that, he takes Jerusalem the last city in in the land of Israel that hadn't been conquered. And he conquers Jerusalem with the intent that that that's going to be the place where God will put his name. David became convinced that would be the city where God would put his permanent sanctuary. And it's with that intent uh, that God approaches David and makes this covenant with him to establish his house And his throne and his kingdom. David says, I want to build the Lord a house. Nathan comes to him and says, God's going to build you a house. And God's going to build a house through the line uh, of descendants to come from him. And he says, and through that process, I will establish your house and your throne and your kingdom forever. Well, after that, then we see David... Uh, in this episode with Bathsheba, an, an episode of spectacular failure, where not only does he fail morally, but more importantly, he fails covenantally. He fails to fulfill his responsibility as the epitomizing Israelite, Yahweh's son, king who has the preeminent responsibility to mediate the knowledge of God to the nations. And so when Nathan confronts him with that, he says to him, because you have given occasion to the Gentiles to blaspheme, therefore the son born to you will die. Bathsheba becomes pregnant from that episode. And he says, more than that, the sword will never depart from your house. So the God who had covenanted with David to build his house and establish his house forever has now pledged to David that he's going to tear down that house. And somehow those two things have to fit together. And immediately you see that uh, desolation uh, disintegration of David's house begin to take place first in the death of the child. And then you see in David's own household, uh, the enmity and the the conflict where his son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar and and in rage over that, Absalom ends up killing Amnon. Tamar is defiled and broken and, and hidden away in isolation. Absalom flees into exile. David's house is unraveling. And soon Absalom uh, wins the hearts of the people of Israel and even the elders of Israel. And he he lays uh, or uh, instigates a coup against David. And David is driven away from Jerusalem in his own throne. David is driven into exile, and Absalom assumes the throne of Israel. And soon in the, during the time of Solomon and ultimately carried out David's son Solomon and then carried out through Solomon's son Rehoboam, the kingdom itself is divided. That house of David is broken into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Jude in the south. And David's kingdom is reduced down to the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Just a tiny little shadow of what it had been. And eventually even that tiny shadow goes away. Eventually, even that little piece of that remnant of David's kingdom is destroyed in the Babylonian conquest. So David's house does indeed. God wields the sword against it until there's nothing left. And yet floating over the top of that is the promise of God in the covenant. I will establish your house and your throne and your kingdom forever in a son to come from you. And you saw that even as we read from uh, Psalm 30 and then uh, David's hymn of thanksgiving in chapter 22 of 2nd Samuel, that thing of David seeing that God would keep his word in spite of all of these things that have arisen, all of these downturns and difficulties, and even God's just retribution against David. Somehow God will still be faithful to the pledge that he made to him. And David holds very tightly to that. So the Samuel narrative then emphasizes the beginning of the dissolution of David's house and kingdom. You don't see the kingdom divided. You don't see, um, you know, the, all of the things that happen down the road. All of that comes later. It doesn't happen during David's life. And 2 Samuel ends with David still alive, but coming to the very end. Uh, first kings will pick up with the throne being passed to Solomon and then Solomon beginning to build the the Jerusalem temple. So the book of Samuel, and in the Hebrew Bible, 1 and 2 Samuel are one book, but you see the beginning of this dissolution of David's house and kingdom. But the book is also careful to show that Yahweh had not rejected his covenant. Again, David is restored to his throne after Absalom dies. A hint that The kingdom is not going to go away or that God will keep his his word. We saw even in reading David's final words, he's celebrating the fact of God's covenant faithfulness. And David rejoices in faith that God will yet fulfill it. God will keep his covenant with him. But then that high point of David's celebration is immediately then reinforced by this what I'm calling a very curious and calamitous episode. This is what ends the, re- the record of David's life in Samuel. This is the way the author of Samuel chose to end his account of David's life, is with this census in chapter 24. So if you want to take a look at that, we'll just read the beginning of it. You may be familiar with this story, you may not. But again, it's interesting that this is the way the uh, author of, of Samuel chose to end his account of David's life. Chapter twenty-four, Second Samuel, verse 1. Now again, the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. And the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. In other words, north to south, Dan in the north, Beersheba in the very south of Judah. And register the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord, the king can still see that happen. But why does my Lord, the king delight in this thing? Why are you doing this? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. And they crossed the Jordan and camped in Aror on the right side of the city that is in the middle of the valley of Gad toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of and they came to Dunjan and around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. In other words, through the whole region in which Israel had settlements. And they went out to the south of Judah as far as Beersheba. And when they had gone about through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Jerusalem last. And that will become interesting in the way this plays out. This will become important. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. Let me stop at that point here and just, again, kind of move through this in an overview way. A couple of introductory observations about why this would be the closing event. This is not the end of David's life, not the absolute end. But again, in Samuel, this is the way the author chose to end his account. And I think there are several reasons for that, but three at least that I want to mention here First of all, this episode kind of puts a a sharp exclamation point on the pattern of David's life, this general kind of inconsistency. The faithful man who trips up and stumbles. The man who is a man after God's own heart and yet is guilty from time to time of acts of unfaithfulness that have calamitous, catastrophic um, consequences. He is a faithful man, and yet David, like every other king, and we've already discussed this before, he is still a man who rules according to the procedure of the king. David falls short of the ideal of the Israelite kingship. He's the great prototype of that, but he falls short of that ideal. One will come after him who will be king in Israel in the way that David fell short. So this episode kind of puts a sharp point on that uh, pattern in David's life. But it also is the way in which God has ordained the securing of the site of the future temple. We're moving towards the temple. Remember, David wanted to build a house. God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. But he does say a son to come from you will build my house. And as we'll see as we move into the Solomon account, David believed that Solomon would be that son and he entrusts Solomon to build that house. Well, this episode is foundational to that because it's the way this process, this episode of David's unfaithfulness is the way in which God's intent to see a temple built in Jerusalem comes about. The site for the temple and even the establishing of Jerusalem as the place where that is to happen comes about through this episode. So it's important in moving the story forward, even in view of the covenant God made with David. But most of all, and this is where I hope we'll come away today, kind of thinking about more than anything else, is how this episode gives profound insight into David's ultimate significance in the salvation history. David's ultimate significance in God's purposes. How we should understand David in his life and how God used him to build the case for the coming son of David and the work that he would do. So even in what we've read so far, we've seen that the Lord found fault with David's census action, and yet it served God's good purpose to establish his dwelling place on Mount Zion well what exactly is the the issue that God had a problem with and you you see that scholars have debated this through the centuries because there are certain things that just don't seem to make a lot of sense you have God moving David to take this census and yet when David does it David becomes aware of his sin in doing that, and God even brings about a retribution against the nation of Israel because of David doing it. Well, the common way this is viewed, and it's the way that I myself have viewed it through the years, but going back and revisiting this and being able to think about it a little more and do a little more study, I've come to see it in a little bit different lens, and and I think that Seeing it in this different way resolves the kinds of difficulties associated with this. If you read the parallel account in 1 Chronicles, it says Satan moved David to take the census. Satan was behind that temptation to the census. Uh, you see the, the difficulty again of the fact that God moves David to do this, but then he punishes Israel 70,000 men, just men, it doesn't even say women and children, but 70,000 men of Israel die when David does this. So the Lord moves David to do something that is wrong, and then he punishes the people of Israel for what David did. You see, it creates these kinds of quandaries of that doesn't make any sense. And and even maybe beyond that, why would the writer put this account as the climax of his David's story, his telling of David's story. Well, what I've come to believe is that what is behind this episode is that David was acting according to God's instruction to Moses in Exodus 30, and we'll take a look at that. And that puts his offense in an entirely different light. And as I say, it resolves the difficulties of this passage. It lets us even see a different significance of this that really makes it more fitting as the the capstone of the David story. If you look back in Exodus chapter 30, now if you recall, Israel is at Sinai. They arrived at Sinai in chapter 19, this was after they came out of Egypt, and God brings them to Sinai to ratify the covenant relationship with them. The covenant at Sinai is God ratifying the covenant relationship with Abraham's descendants that he had established with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, it's simply affirming to Israel that they stand in the covenant relationship that he established with their fathers. They've come out of Egypt, they're at Sinai. Moses has gone up on the mountain, and God is giving him the prescription for the priesthood and the sanctuary. You know, it's going to be the tabernacle, but all of its furnishings, all of the, the details of the tabernacle, and the administration of the priestly service. Uh, that's what's happening here as we come to chapter 30. If you pick it up in verse 11 of Exodus 30, it says, Then the Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. When you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves... And you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel, this ransom, this half shekel ransom, and you shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before Yahweh to make atonement for yourselves. I think that's the context for understanding what's happening here in 2 Samuel 24. So viewed through that lens then, Yahweh was provoking David to take a census of Israel for the sake of their atonement, an atonement that would provide resource for the sanctuary that was soon to be built by his son Solomon. Now in 2 Samuel, the, the text just ends with this event, but if you read the parallel account in First Chronicles, immediately after this, David recognizing that this site, uh, the threshing floor of Arana, which we're going to get to, David is recognizing that that is the site where the sanctuary is going to be built. He immediately now starts making preparations for gathering in all of the materials, the stuff that's going to be used to build the sanctuary. He's putting all the things in place that God had given to Moses as instruction back in Exodus 25 through 29, actually the beginning of 30. So this is in anticipation of the building of the sanctuary. And remember that atonement money, that ransom money, was to go towards the support, the service of the sanctuary. So the Lord's directive to Moses back at Sinai required each Israelite to pay half a shekel as a personal ransom, meaning a price of atonement. But that price would go toward the ministration of the tabernacle slash sanctuary that was going to be constructed soon. The last part of Exodus, after this Exodus 30 context, the last part of Exodus is the building of the sanctuary. And Exodus ends with the glory of God descending on the tabernacle, right? That's the way it ends. So what we read in Exodus 30 is... Is anticipating the building of the sanctuary that's going to come right away, the tabernacle in the wilderness. And this ransom that's being paid is for the support of that ministration in advance. So the Mosaic census underscored the truth that covenantal purity, every Israelite had to do this. This wasn't limited to any particular individuals, the rich and the poor, all the same. Every person, the point of the census was to count everyone in Israel who was of a reckoning age, 20 years or older, and every one of them had to pay the atoning price. Because covenantal purity in the nation as a whole was essential to Israel's ongoing relationship with its God. And it was the sanctuary and priesthood that would administer that relationship. That was why Yahweh issued the warning that failure to pay the atoning price would bring a plague. Every person has to pay this lest there be a plague from the Lord. Now, in order to tie this into 2 Samuel 24, the obvious conclusion has to be that Exodus 30, what God was requiring there was to be a recurring thing, not a one-time thing. If it was just something that Moses was to do with the sons of Israel at Sinai in preparation for the building of the tabernacle, then it wouldn't apply here later, right? Centuries later. But if you read in Numbers 31, and I'm not gonna take the time to do this, but, but you can do that, I've given you the reference. If you read in Numbers 31, the indication there is that this census was to be a recurring thing. And you see, even throughout Israel's history, there was debate about how often it should happen. Should it be every year? How often should it happen? but there's evidence in the text itself and in Israel's history that this was a recurring obligation and i think beyond that the fact that it was the the money that was paid in ransom by each adult israelite was to go for the ongoing support of the the sanctuary that tells you it would be a recurring thing right because that support was ongoing. It wasn't just a one-time thing. And the fact that it was a memorial for the sons of Israel, as we read, that also indicates that it would be a recurring thing. If it was a one-time thing, it doesn't have much of a memorial sense. Once the money's used, the temple's been, you know, where is the sense that that's what's happening when this ransom is being paid to support God's sanctuary? How is that an everlasting memorial in Israel? And beyond that, you see even historically that certain readings in the Dead Sea Scrolls and also Josephus, if you're familiar with him, first century Jewish historian, um, there are indications from those uh, writings and from Josephus that at least many among the Jews understood this requirement of the census and the ransom payment to be an ongoing part of Israel's life. That's the way I think we need to read this. And reading it through that lens then, David's offense wasn't taking a census of the people, but failing to exact the half-shekel ransom. Second Samuel, the text itself says that the Lord moved David to take the census because his anger burdened against Israel. There was something between him and Israel that needed to be dealt with. So he moves David to take a census. And if you view it through that lens of the census with each person having to make a reckoning for his own alienation from God through the pain of a ransom, this is the way in which God would deal with that anger, that problem in the relationship. This is the way in which the people of Israel would make themselves right with God. That indicates that God intended that census to make atonement for them, and so David apparently failed to have his men collect the ransom, and that 's what provoked Yahweh to pour out the plague on the people, which we 'll see if we keep when we keep reading through this so let's continue on verse ten second samuel twenty four it says, now David's heart troubled him after he numbered the people, and he said, I have sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, Yahweh, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came, by, uh, came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and speak to David. Thus, Yahweh says, I am offering you three things. Here's how I will deal with your offense. Choose for yourself one of them, which I may do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to the land because of your offense? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? In other words, the invasion of the land by a conquering power, or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. That's what Gad says to David. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercies are great. Do not let me fall into the hand of man. I'm going to trust myself to God. I'll let him decide how he wants to handle this. I'd rather fall into his hand than the hands of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence among Israel upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. The census was taken from Dan to Beersheba and from Dan to Beersheba they died. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it remember the last place where the census was taken was Jerusalem. Now, the last place where the pestilence is reaching is Jerusalem. God is responding in kind to the census that did not have its atoning work. And in that time, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Hold back your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. This is just right at Jerusalem. Now here, that's what happened. Now here's how it came about. So this isn't all chronological, but now we're seeing how it was David's intercession that caused God to stay his hand. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel striking down the people and coming now, drawing right up to Jerusalem. Behold, it is I who have sinned and it is I who have done wrong. These sheep, the people of Israel, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So Gad came to David that day and said, Go, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, where the angel was poised to strike Jerusalem. That's where David was told to go and build an altar and present offerings to the Lord. And David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. And Arana looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing toward him. And Arana went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to Yahweh, that the plague may be held back from the people. And Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. I'll give it all to you. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Arana Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. He says, take it all, I want to give it to you. However, the king said to Arana, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. In the Chronicles account, it's much, much more that he paid for the whole place. And it becomes aware that he was buying that whole site, not just the threshing floor itself. The site that will become the site of the temple. You couldn't put the whole temple on just a little threshing floor, right? And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus, the Lord was moved by the entreaty for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. That's the end of the writer of Samuel's account of David. He makes this be the climactic episode in David's life. So again, then David's offense, if this is read through the lens of Exodus 30 and that obligation of the law of the census, his offense is clearly in not taking the atoning ransom from the people. He takes the census of all the people from Dan to Beersheba. The plague goes out on all the people from Dan to Beersheba, which means that that atoning ransom has not been paid. And that omission on David's part, in my judgment, then seems to be the matter of satanic deception. God said, take a census. Well, take a census according to the Mosaic law of the census. Well, that brings with it the half shekel payment. And I think this, that Satan moving David is to either conf, you know, cloud his mind or cause him to forget, but somehow to omit that key piece of the taking of the census, taking of the half-shekel ransom. So, But when David realizes what he has done, when the census is completed, he's undone. He sees that the people of Israel are dying because of his oversight, his failure. It's his fault. It's not their fault. It's his fault. He was Israel's appointed shepherd and he was responsible for overseeing Israel's relationship with their covenant Lord. Remember, even when God made his covenant with him, he said, I took you from the sheepfold to shepherd my people Israel. David's shepherding responsibility meant that he was to care for the sheep. He was to oversee them in that way. But now his oversight, his forgetfulness, his failure, his omission has left them in this alienated place with respect to their God and with their sin unatoned. And so rather than interceding for them as Yahweh had directed by commissioning him to moving him to to commission the census, David had effectively abandoned Israel to endure Yahweh's retribution. It's echoes of Jesus talking about himself as the good shepherd. The hireling doesn't care about the sheep. The hireling leaves the sheep to perish at the hands of predators, right? He flees when danger comes. The good shepherd cares for the sheep. He preserves the sheep. He secures the well-being of the sheep. So as David recognizes what he's done, he pleads with God to forgive him. And as we saw, God gives him three options in judgment. By Moving David to take this commission, God was affirming to David that he was the shepherd. He was the mediator. He was the one who was to stand between him and the people. And by giving David now three choices of punishment, he's affirming that again. You were the one who was to lead the people in a way that would restore their relationship with me. You have failed. Now you will decide how, this, how they will be punished You will stand as intercessor in that regard. Well, as we saw, David entrusted that decision, that punishment to the Lord, and God sends out his angel from Dan to Beersheba slaying the people. As now the angel has moved through the land and he's holding out his arm to Uh, you know, exert this plague against Jerusalem, that's when David cries out to the Lord and he says, God, stop, punish me. I'm the one who did this. When David sees it happening around him, punish me. These sheep, what have they done? Take out your wrath against me. And God responds by directing him. The angel is on Arana's threshing floor a place of winnowing, and God directs him to go and to build an altar there and to offer offerings. And that intercession, that intervention by David, is the reason that God says, enough, and he says to the angel, stay your hand. That all happens, that confrontation, David's intercession, David standing in the gap, and God relenting because of David's ministration, his priestly ministration, all of that happens at this place, the threshing floor of Arana. And that will become the site of the temple. So some concluding observations then. When you look at the story, again, one of the problems with it at face value is that what provoked God to move David to take the census was that his wrath burned against Israel. So he moves David to do something wrong in order to punish Israel. That's the quandary that we seem to have there. And it's clear that it was Israel that God was upset with, not David initially, you know, in the commissioning of the census, because when he gives David these options, they pertain to the nation, not just to David himself. David, that's why he cries out and says, punish me. Don't punish them. They haven't done anything. He begged Yahweh to allow him to bear the stroke on behalf of Israel, and God granted his plea by directing him to intercede for them through an appointed offering at the place of judgment. Remember I said earlier, what is the significance of this account? Anytime we read something in the scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, we should be saying, why is this included in the scriptural account? Is it just facts and figures or historical data? No, there's a reason the writers were moved by the spirit to include this. Why did the writer of Samuel put this in as the capstone of his account of David's life? And as I said at the beginning, I think that the primary reason is the way that it adds insight into David's significance as he himself is the great prototype of the one who will come, the one who will be the faithful king. And that's what I'm trying to flesh out here. So in a remarkable way, it was David's faithful priestly intercession that followed his calamitous failure that set the stage for the Jerusalem temple that had been the object of his longing for decades. God worked in a mysterious way. Who would have thought that David's failure, which was necessary to his intercession, in other words, in a sense, he's bearing the guilt of the people before God in order to secure the place where God will dwell. Yahweh had enacted the Mosaic Census Law of Deuteronomy or uh, Exodus 30 to address Israel's covenant violation. Collectively as a nation, but also individually. The point of a census was to count each person, right? Make sure nobody was left out. It was the same for everybody, rich, poor, status, no status, whatever. Everybody was reckoned the same. Every individual had to pay the same ransom, and that payment was to be used to support the Lord's sanctuary and its ministration. And God devised that means of personal and collective atonement to serve the very system, the priestly system that he was putting in place to mediate his covenant relationship with his people. And now, several hundred years later, notably by means of this catastrophic circumstance, God has now forever connected that mosaic census and its purpose in relation to the sanctuary and the mediation, so the ministration of that sanctuary, God has now, through this episode, forever connected that with David and the covenant with David. So the atonement that, provided, uh, that was provided by the half-shekel ransom is now associated with David's priestly intercession as Yahweh's chosen shepherd. David gets woven into that census law This adds a new coloration, a new significance. And from this point forward, Israel will always think of that census law through the lens of what happened with David. That half shekel ransom, they'll now associate with David's priestly intercession. That's how atonement for the people has been made. And that atoning ministration that David made was at the Lord's direction and at great personal cost. David paid the price of that. Remember, Rana said, here, take the the ground, take the oxen, take the wood, take everything. I give it to you as an act of devotion. And David said, no, I'm not going to offer to the Lord what costs me nothing. This came at great personal cost. So the census law provided atonement for Yahweh's covenant people (laughs) through a prescribed personal payment of half a shekel, Here the atonement comes through payment and priestly ministration that is rendered by David alone. A third observation is that God had prescribed the place of David's atoning intercession. He told him exactly where to build that altar, and it was in Jerusalem at the point where the angel was poised to make Jerusalem desolate. He directed David to intercede at a place of winnowing. That's what a threshing floor is. In the ancient world, you would cut down the, the ripened grain, and then you would scatter the stalks on a threshing floor, a big, broad, flat area, and you'd let it dry. And then you would walk oxen around or other you know, beasts of burden and let them you know, mash down the, the stalks in order to separate the wheat or the grain from the chaff. And then they would go in there on a windy day with forks and they would throw the matter, the, you know, the plant matter into the air and the chaff was light. It's like the, the straw, the dried out straw. And the wind would blow it away and the seed would fall back, the wheat or the, whatever the grain was to the ground. And that was how they would winnow the grain. This is a threshing floor. It's a place of Separation. The idea of judgment is separation. So it's a place of judgment in that sense. A place where the angel stood poised to desolate Jerusalem. The city that David believed was to be the city of God. The place where he'd already enthroned Yahweh and installed his ark, and now it's poised to be made desolate. Think again about how we've seen the significance of Jerusalem. That's where this happens. So David had long believed, and now the Lord has affirmed, that Jerusalem was to be the site of his permanent sanctuary. And David's priestly offering atoned for and preserved the sacred city and its inhabitants, even as Moses' ransom, the ransom of Moses' census, sustained the tabernacle. So this episode, I think the writer of Samuel understood was the absolute fitting way to sum up David's Life, David's role as God's king and shepherd, David's significance, and ultimately how David's own life and, and role in God's purposes would build the case for the coming son promised in the covenant. It, it first of all showed uh, a, a development of the priestly dimension of David's role. Recall again, David was the only king who performed a priestly function and God was pleased with it. When Saul did it, God stripped the kingdom from him. When Uzziah did it, God struck him with leprosy and he was confined to his house for the rest of his life. Remember when David brought up the ark to Jerusalem, he was wearing the ephod and he was making sacrifices along the way. David functioned as a king priest in enthroning Yahweh on Mount Zion. And now he's acting as a king priest in setting apart, sanctifying the people and sanctifying the place where God's house is to be built. It secondly proved out David's belief that Jerusalem was to be that city of the great God the place where Israel and all mankind would meet with him. And when we move forward into Kings and we see Solomon going on and building the house, Solomon's prayer of dedication, he talks about all of the nations coming to this house to encounter God there. This is to be a house of prayer and, and, and encounter for all the nations, not just the sons of Israel. And he says to God, when the foreigner comes here and petitions, you hear him be favorable to him. This house that I am building and that I've built and that I'm consecrating is to be the place of encounter for the creator God and his creation, the place where all men of all nations come to meet with God. The city of the great king, the city of the great God. And Jerusalem takes on that significance even in the prophets, right? It will in the last days it will become the greatest This mountain of the house of the Lord will become the greatest. All the nations will stream to it. And that streaming to the place where God dwells becomes associated with the Messiah himself. He is the sanctuary that all the nations come to. The place where God is encountered, the place where heaven and earth come together. And more specifically, this episode identified the specific site of the sanctuary that Solomon would build a site associated with winnowing. Once Solomon now builds the house on the threshing floor, God will be encountered and worshipped at that place, and it's there at that place that he would judge and winnow his people. And one day, David's covenant son would fulfill his father's atoning ministration, David his father's atoning ministration in that very place, And in that way, winnow the sons of Israel and all mankind. How did John John the Baptist introduce Jesus? Remember, John was the forerunner. His role was to prepare for the Lord's entrance, the Lord's return to Zion. He would go before the Lord to herald him, to announce him, to prepare for him. And when John saw Jesus coming to him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so John turns to these Israelites, and he says, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for God is able to raise up from these stones children for abraham if you are really abraham's children then bring forth fruit in keeping with that repentance that would be associated with returning to abraham returning to god by becoming a people who are prepared to receive him as he comes to you in the messiah because he's going to clear his threshing floor So that's the episode of the census, and I think, again, viewing it through the lens of of Exodus 30 not only solves the problems that that immediately arise, but it gives a profoundness to this episode that I think we would otherwise miss, even as it contributes to David's own role. David has to fail in order to stand in the gap and bear the stroke on behalf of of the people, as it were, by offering the sacrifice. But that was a critical aspect of his own typological role, right? The one who would come and stand in the gap and bear the stroke at the threshing floor where God would winnow men, where God himself would reckon men and God would be satisfied, that's the way the David story ends, uh, as far as you know his life. He's still alive, and he will pass on the throne to Solomon, as we'll see next time. Um, but this is kind of the high point of David's life at the end, and I think it's significant because of what it says. It was a great failure on David's part that allowed this great triumph, and that was David's life: failure and triumph, triumph through failure. And so it is with us. Well, let me close in prayer then and we'll, we'll close with our, our final song. Father, I, I pray that you would really uh, work these things into our hearts and our minds, work them into our spirits. I pray that as uh, the psalmist says at the very outset of, of the Psalter, that, that the godly man, the faithful man meditates on your instruction day and night. And in that way, it's like a tree planted by the streams of water that brings forth its fruit in season and its leaves never wither. In all things, it prospers. And I pray that we would be such meditative and contemplative people that we would give much time and and devotion and prayer and contemplation to the most marvelous way in which you have worked even the way in which you so gloriously used the flawed man, David, and that you were pleased to bring forth from him the most profound and glorious uh, prefigurative sight of the coming priest king, who would succeed where David had failed, who would live the truly authentic human life, the one who would be Son of God and Son of Man indeed. Father, as those who are bound over to the Lord Jesus, as those who are called by his name, as those who take the title of Christian, who call ourselves the people of the Messiah, I pray that we would be meditative, contemplative people in that way, that we would never grow tired of the glorious privilege of growing up in all things into Christ who is the head. That we wouldn't see our study and our contemplation, our reading as just labors of duty or mastering information or some sort of assignment that is put in front of us, but that it would be our great delight. That it would fill us, that it would flood us, that it would enrich us. Meet each one of us, Father, grow us up, and may we be stewards of that trust even with one another. May our fellowship, our interaction, our love for one another always be centered in seeking, as Paul said, in the working of the Spirit to see each one grow up in all things into Christ who is the head, becoming complete in him. If we love one another, that's the way we will labor with one another, and I pray that you will help us to be faithful in that way. Thank you for the time. I thank you for each one of these saints. I thank you for your work in their life. And I pray that you will continue all the more to grow them up and to grow us up together. Bless us, Father, as we uh, conclude our time of worship. And uh, even as we lift up these words in song, may our hearts be lifted up to you. As always, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.